The Burroughs of Berea is a conversational podcast. We study the Bible and we talk about it. Not all of us are of the same faith, and one of us doesn't actually have a faith. And that's wonderful. We all love one another, and we're going to continue to talk about these things. The things we believe in and the things we believe about what we read in the Bible. Not all of these are necessarily true. Some of it is opinion and speculation. Thank you for listening and speculating with us. There you go. That was good. Yes. Stomps, stomps, stomps. <laughs> you are listening to the Burrows of Berea. Well, welcome back to the Burrows of Berea. I am Rick Welch, and to my right is Cherry the Annihilator Lewis. Hello. <laughs> Sarita the Rita Edgerton. Hola, mis amigos. Where did you say you were from? South Carolina. Spartanburg. That's where I live. That's not where I'm from. Spartanburg. Yeah. yeah he this gets it. is Spartanburg. Yeah, he hey, gets Brian it. Brian got it. He, he didn't even it. know. He hasn't he he, got it right away. He has no idea we've done that. Behind the glass, Rocket Man Andy Bishop. Hello. Straight out of Compton, Ralph Hicks. Represent. And Billy Eye Candy Kimsey. Sometimes you feel like a nut. Sometimes you don't. <laughs> he didn't do his rocket sound. He did. Serena gave me a look. <laughs> it's the first time. Yeah. I, so, every once in a while, Blue Moon, I leave it off just to spice things. Man, yeah. I've got a great joke for sometimes you feel like a nut, but I will not do it. I can't. I thought you were going to be a high chew. A high chew? Yeah. I don't know what a high chew is. He's going to do some research. Oh, Henry. Yeah. Well, I, I want to get into this, guys. We have a very, very awesome guest. Uh, I've, I actually uh, have spoke with him. I, well, I didn't speak with him, but we've emailed back and forth a couple of months ago. We've kept this going, and uh, I'm so glad that he's on the show. Uh, a very prolific author, a screenwriter of Hollywood films and some Christian films. And uh, we'll get into the books later, but author Brian Gadawa is here. Brian, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, and I'm from Texas. Freedom! <laughs> Are you in Texas right now? Yeah. Is that where Mel Gibson's from? Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> okay, I, I just, just realized what that, that was a joke hailing back to, uh, what's, that, what's that movie? Braveheart? Brave Braveheart, Heart, yeah. Yes. You're down but, there with Joe Rogan and them guys, Tony Hinchcliffe oh, and all well. that. Uh, yeah, yeah he's, he's down south, but I'm up near Dallas, but I just moved out here about a year and a half ago over... In 2020, and um, I lived in Southern California for 30 years, so that's why I, I yell freedom. Yeah. It was one of the like U-Hauls a- that came out but never went back? Yeah. That's yeah, right. actually, we couldn't get that. it. We wouldn't be able to get a uh, U-Haul because they were all booked up, but it was a good thing anyway because we got we lived in a condo only anyway, and we didn't have much stuff, so we gave all of it away and uh, or sold some of it, you know, and we just drove in our two cars out to Texas and— uh, of course, you know, with the sale of a condo in Los Angeles, you could buy a completely new home in Texas. Wow. A ranch almost. Really? Yeah. Is, yes, that That's is a true statement. Well, when I said, Brian, when I said prolific author, can you give us an idea? Like, how many books have you actually written, like number-wise? Lots. <laughs> <laughs> you don't even know how many. I it's, don't know, like 23 it's or something a lot. like that. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I sent yeah. it to the guys today. Uh, we looked you up on Wikipedia, you know, we looked you up on your uh, website, Godawa.com, and yeah. then we, I sent things from IMDb and from YouTube and you name it, and you're all over the place, like your books, and I really, I'm, we're going to get into this a little bit because I want to hear your testimony, but the Chronicles of Nephilim book series, like, yeah. man, that looks awesome, and then 
guys, <laughs> I, Brian, what I would like to ask you before we get into this, even after your testimony, I'm still going to like you when you're done. And so <laughs> I'd like to put a link on our website to get people to where your books are. Because guys, these are incredible the spiritual cool. world of ancient China and the Bible, the spiritual world of Jezebel and Elijah, Watchers, the Nephilim, and the Cosmic War, the Seed, when giants mm-hmm. were upon the earth. I mean, I love that stuff. Remember when we talked about all that stuff, Andy? Oh, oh I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I read some things like that in a different genre, but I was like, wow, this is interesting. And I like his spoofs, too. Those were I watched all these spoofs. They're pretty funny. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen those yet. Yeah, there are a couple, there's some, um, they're like little skits or, or, you know, little five minute short films and uh, they're on my website. Yeah, my website's just my name, gadawa.com. Yeah, it was, it, there's a lot of information. Hey, Rick, is, is, are we doing any of his books? I know you said we're going to be doing a lot of reading of books for audiobooks. Are we doing any of his? No, it, well, you know, I'm so glad you brought that up and maybe we could talk to Brian about that. Brian, do you have audiobooks? I do. I oh, do. Oh, very um, all, good. Almost Almost all of my books are in audio, as well as paperback and dig- and um, ebook. You know, and it's all on Amazon. But uh, what what do you guys do with this book reading thing? Oh, it's just something that the Burroughs are getting into. You know, and we'll 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 do a shameless plug for that. We're actually going to begin uh, doing audio books uh, for a couple of organizations that have, uh, for instance, oh, cool. we're going to be doing some of Chilton's work, uh, Days of oh. Vengeance, and uh, yeah, the Great Tribulation and uh, Paradise. Restored, I think it is, and then Great, uh, man. yep, we're some Damar works and Gentry. So we're getting into some stuff. We're we're pretty. I'm excited. So all of these non-preterists are going to be reading these preterist books. You know, I'm <laughs> so excited about it. You know, it's great. Hey, listen. Okay, this will be my this will be my self promotion moment here. Is that Do it. if you really look, if you're not preterist, that's cool. If you want. You know, there are different ways of doing it. Like, I know that a lot of, if you're like me, of course you want to do the in-depth, exhaustive Bible study. I need that for myself. But if you also, if you want a good um, introduction in a way or a an entertaining um, expression of it, my, my novel series, Chronicles of the Apocalypse, is four novels. And I basically tell the first century story when John's writing the book of Revelation and Nero's persecuting the Christians and all that. And I have a supernatural angle with angels and demons and stuff. And I basically tell the origin story of the book of Revelation. But as a preterist, of course, I, I consider it to be fulfilled in that first century. So I try to show how the Jews might have understood it in their world at that time. Mm. And it's a very entertaining, big epic romance, de- angels, demons, all kinds of cool stuff. And I, I think it's a great way to introduce people into, and I say that because, not because it's simplistic, but because I actually think dramatization or narrative is 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 sometimes more powerful of, of communicating theology than... Um, than, you know, like systematic theology or something like that. And yeah. of course, Jesus agrees with me, so that's good. <laughs> well, most people didn't read the learn the Bible by reading it anyway. They Somebody got up on podium and, and, yeah. and, and did it for them. But I like how you said that talking about how the Jews may have understood it in their time, because all yeah. of my life I've wondered about translations and different things about how do we know how they thought it was and how do they know the meaning of this word and everything. So I like that you that you said that and you wrote it that way. Yeah. Yeah, I I'm just curious um 
how you were able to get John into the to the neuronic persecution when he was actually during Domitian's. And that's a joke, Brian. I'm just playing. I, I know. know. I know. <laughs> if nobody knows what we're talking about, it's about 8096 nope. to 8066. Yeah, that's the thing. Revelation, the late date versus the early date. And so yeah. he said neuronic. And so I'm just, it was a pick on him. Only preterists know this. So ha 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 yes. for us four. Total in our total listening audience <laughs> that got the joke. So anyway, the neurotics being neuronic. <laughs> <laughs> so Brian, every single guest that I have on the show, I ask them the same question. Okay, the very first question: Can you tell me the earliest memory that you have of when you heard the name Jesus Christ? Oh wow! I know, right? Well, you know, I was I was raised in a Roman Catholic church, so I did hear his name as a young child, you know, probably um, you know, uh 9 or 10, I could but but honestly, I don't remember I mean, I don't necessarily remember hearing that, but I mean, I I went through commun- uh my first communion and all that. So that must have been when I did, you know, but in terms of um in terms of when I yeah, I guess that would be it. So you would, so you're raised Roman Catholic. We hear that a lot yeah. on here, don't we, guys? Mm-hmm. A lot of the testimonies, people were in the Roman Catholic Church and they heard Jesus as a child, and then they would have some sort of a conversion outside of the Catholic Church. Well, look right? at the age yeah. of forty and fifty and above. And, yeah, and that was really big back then. Sure. Yeah, yeah that makes yeah. sense. I'm uh, that old. I'm in that old old style generation. The yeah. oldsters. Old old style. Well, tell us. I'm I'm very curious. Uh, to hear your salvation story. And uh, what we want to do is just, you take it away. You tell us, you know, uh, where, just your life story and how, how how you came to be saved and how you got to where you are today. Well, I was born a Christian. Just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Well, um, you were the second time. <laughs> yeah, born again. Uh, no, seriously. So, yeah, I, I, I was raised in, in Illinois and um, to, like I said, a, a Catholic family. And um, I've always, I'm an artist and I've always been an artist. And I think that that gives me a certain sensibility of, and a sensitivity actually to some things that other people don't think as much about. I mean, I do, it's funny, I do actually, my early memories of of death actually were in, I remember in high school where, you know, I, yeah, I'd been raised as a Catholic, but it wasn't, God was not real to my family. And, and they would even tell you that now too, because they all eventually did become Christians as well. But, but, you know, it was a religion and it was for, for them, it, for us, it was a religion. And we just, you know, went through the rote and the rituals and all that stuff, but we didn't really have a, a, a personal connection to God in any way. And um, not only that, but I, you know, I, I kind of felt like, you know, if, if there's God, how come he's so distant or how come he doesn't show himself type of thing? You know, like, where is he? You know, he's, I don't really have a sense of him anywhere. You know, it's, you've got to just believe this stuff. Well, when I was in high school and pursuing my art and my, my personal goal was to be, you know, I want to be a great artist, you know, because I, I wanted, I always wanted to have a sense of significance in this world. And I thought, well, you know, if I, if I became a famous artist, like Michelangelo, who was my, my hero, then, you know, people, I could have an influence on history in some way and people might be studying my work, you know, long after I was gone even. You know, that was how I thought I would have a sense of significance or legacy. And so it really, you know, it was a sense of fame and 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 that's what I thought would give me that purpose and that meaning. But around that same time, um, but also, like I said, as, as an artist, I've also had a sort of a, just a constant sort of awareness of death. 
and just really thinking about death a lot and not in a suicidal way, but just um, thinking about the reality of death. And man, it could all be over in a second and our whole life is gone and over. And um, well, what's going to happen to us when we die? And, and what's the meaning and purpose of our life? That kind of thing. I used to think about that a lot. And one of my fellow artist friends in, in my class actually did commit suicide. And of course, I didn't understand the nature of depression at that time or anything. It was just shocking and bizarre. But it really did. It made me think a lot, you know, what you know, about the meaning and purpose of life. And so, you know, at, around that time, interestingly. Um, Can I, I'm sorry uh, to interrupt. Can I ask you what, sure. around what age you are at this point? Yeah, so um, I would say I'm about uh, 15, 16 probably. Okay. Roughly, yeah, so, roughly yeah. 16 when, when this stuff started coming together. And um, so I'm like a sophomore or junior in high school. And, okay, thank you. And, um, and I had already done the communion thing, but it wasn't real to me. So, you know, I, I had no faith. And so, uh, but this started making me think a lot about, a lot about death. And I, I remember even to this day thinking, man, you know, death is like forever. You know, like when you're dead, you're gone. And, and if you, you know, I, I looked at the timeline of history, you know, and you could see like, who knows how far back and how far forward history goes. But there I am, a little dot, a little blip on the, on the timeline of history. Very insignificant. And, and it really made me think about, I'm going to be dead a lot longer than I am alive. And that was serious stuff. And I, you know, it made me concerned. And, and so around that time, though, this kid, uh, you know, just another um, Christian guy befriended me and, and he invited me to this uh, Christian youth group. And interestingly, this was many, many years ago in the 70s. So this was, this church was the, one of the first churches ever that did, uh, they had like this, this high school group during the weeknights where you'd go and play games and then they would play rock music. Mm-hmm. And then they'd have a speaker go up there and he'd speak really relevant to my life, you know, which is very different from the church, religious church I'd been going to. It made sense, you know. And um, I went to that for a while, actually. Um, and and they had drama. They had did drama. Now, this was the first that had ever done that. You know, in fact, the church was, uh, dare I say its name, um, you <laughs> Willow can. Creek. What is it? Willow, Willow Creek, Creek, Sun City. Ah. You know, and now God knows what kind of woke abomination they've become. But but um, <laughs> at the time, at the time though, you know, you know, it was simple and it it broke through the religion. That Were they I part of that in. Jesus movement? Do you remember the Jesus no. movement? No. Okay. No, no, not at all. Um, they they started right around that time in that in the late seventies. So I got in there pretty early. But um, so you know, anyway, my conversion story is not uh, an emotional one. I was basically by by worldly standards, I was a good kid. You know, um, I didn't do drugs. I didn't even have sex, and I wanted to, but uh, <laughs> but I wasn't that. I wasn't a popular kid or anything like that. So um, you know, I just did my thing. I, I did my sport and I did my art and and all that and. Um, you know, but but what happened to me was it was more of a just a dawning where I, I I do remember the day when I went to one of these Sun City groups and the message finally hit home to me in a way that made me realize I really need I'm there's a reason why I feel like God's not around because I'm cut off from Him and it's my my sin and that sin you know causes a separation between me and my Creator and that's of course why Jesus died His death was to pay the penalty for my sin, take my place. Kind of like the, you know, I love the analogy of the um, the the murderer who's in, in court of law and the judge declares him guilty and then he gets off the bench and, 
and says, I'm going to pay the price for you, that kind of concept. And that made a lot of sense to me. And and uh, so I've I've always been a person who've, who's been interested in the truth. And, and of course, that's my pursuit in art as well. I want to communicate truth. I want to discover truth. And so the truth of it just hit me. Again, no big emotional thing. It was just, this is truth. And I've got to come back in a relationship with God. And I've got to, you know, commit my life to Jesus Christ in some way. So I called that my friend who had been inviting me. And I, we, I remember sitting there on the curb after the thing. And I'm praying to, to just give my life to Jesus and follow him and become his disciple. And, and um, you know, my and in, in the same sense, I didn't feel any big dramatic change. I didn't have a lot to, to repent from in that sense. But of course, when the Holy Spirit came in me, which I now look back and you can see, oh, that was the Holy Spirit, was I suddenly started to become aware of the things in my life that, uh, whether it's my bad language or my hateful thoughts about people, you know, all those things started becoming real to me. And I started realizing, you know, in a way, um, if, if I were to c- compare myself to God's Ten Commandments, so to speak, uh, I, not so to speak, literally, <laughs> I... I'd broken all of them, you know, if at least in my heart, if not literally, you know, lying, cheating, stealing, uh, committing adultery in my heart, um, you know, that kind of thing and hating people, wanting them to be dead or whatever. And so that, re- in other words, I started seeing that the reality of pride in my life um, and that pride is in that sense, as C.S. Lewis talked about, that is the, the highest sin of all. And, and that's what I began to realize was that I... I was the chief of all sinners. It just wasn't obvious to other people, but I, I just got that sense of of my true sinful self. But of course, you know, learning more over the next few couple of years about the grace of God and and how that operates and and His forgiveness um, and life is a pursuit of sanctification. You know, and and so I went to college and um, uh, I. It was so this is before from, college. So yeah, this because yeah, what you were talking about this sense of sin, like uh, all of the other people that I've talked to, especially like Ralph, who come from a Roman Catholic background, usually have a very good understanding of being the chief of sinners in their life. Like they already know that. So for you, yeah, yeah we really got guilt didn't covered. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like so, yeah. he said guilt was covered, but you know, but for you at this point, like you really came, you recognized the holiness. More so, and your after the fact almost. I mean, I, I was realizing I was a sinner and I needed Jesus, but yeah, it was, and it was the biggest delusion of all for people when, to think you're a good person. I mean, that's the biggest delusion, you know, um, I, that I was just as bad as any of these other people. They just didn't realize what was in my heart. So, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so but then yeah, you at the same time you, the grace of God. Yeah, sorry to have interrupted you. So then now you're in college. You're going to college. Yeah, so I go to college, and it's not, you know, they. That church was not very strong on discipling. It was pretty evangelistic. Um, but it wasn't until I went to college and met a brother in the Lord, and, and that's when I first became discipled, and I started to grow in Christ in that sense. And, you know, that by the way, that that conversion then gave me a new purpose in life. And rather than um, thinking that, well, you know, when before, a Christ, before I was a Christian, that realization of death was the crusher of my desire for fame because I also realized at the same time, well, when I'm dead, I don't know where I was going to be, but you know, I'm not going to, I'm going to be disconnected from this world. I'm not going to receive anything. I'm not going to know about anything that's going on about me or worshiping my art or whatever, you know, studying my art and all that stuff. So like, in other words, it wouldn't matter what kind of accomplishments I did on the earth when I was dead and gone and it wouldn't do me any good, you know? And it's sort of, that's, that's what I, you know, I, I love about the existentialists is that they're 
really is that that um, keen awareness of the angst, the the dread of the 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 meaninglessness of life, and how death brings you to that. That's why it's one of the most important themes in, in a lot of my a lot of my stories. Death brings you to that that realization of, of your lack of meaning and purpose. And so then when I became to know Christ, I started learning and growing. And, and um, interestingly, though, I had a hard time understanding how my art and my faith worked together uh, until I studied, uh, read a book, uh, all the books of Francis Schaeffer. He's a, yes. I don't know if he's known that well much yeah, anymore. Yeah, I'm but. very familiar with him. Yeah, he was like the only guy who wrote about the arts at all uh, mm-hmm. back then. And um, I read it, and it it opened my eyes, and I start I began to to uh, understand how my art reflects a worldview and how it's all integrated, and how to you know how to pursue that um, meaning in art without having the you know the propaganda nature that so much of bad Christian art has today. And that that was that was really transforming in my life and. I had also become just in love with apologetics for many years, and uh, even to this day, you know, I, I love apologetics, and I've studied. But that that apologetics affected my life in a in a good way and in a bad way. And what it did was it I I began to understand things through the lens of apologetics and doctrinal truth and such. And of course, like I said, I'm a truth focused person, so that makes sense why I'm drawn to that. But I would say that uh, over the years that it had a twofold effect. One was sort of, um, you know, allowing me to see the, the, the logos of God, you know, the rational rationality of God. But at the same time, it also started to almost put a wedge between the imagination and the mind and, uh, the, and my imagination. Some people would say the heart, you know, like a charismatic might say, oh, the heart and the mind. But I, I, I'm, I'm not like that. I'm not that kind of person. To me, it's, it's imagination and the mind and, the, and reason. And I, it, you know, I, I was almost like living a double life where I had, I'm this artistic person, but I'm also st- doing all this hyper-rationalistic stuff. And I think that, that it created a, a, a hyper-rationalization in my life that I think ultimately over the 20 or 30 years after that, um, it, it, it started to affect me in some negative ways where, you know, I would tend to see God as a worldview or as a philosophy rather than the person. And it's, you know, it's not that I didn't have the personal relationship. I'm just saying that, uh, that, that when you, when you stress one thing, you, you have to really be open to being aware of how that one thing can make you myopic and miss other things. But because of my art, <laughs> thankfully, oh, oh, after many, many, many years, I started to, uh, I also had kind of a, a change of understanding, and and I started to understand how how my imagination, like my, not just my intellect, could interact with God, but also my imagination in theology and in faith, because it always was difficult to see how those two would work together, because an overemphasis on rationality um, will make you. Um, tend to reduce the Bible to a book of doctrines and systematic theology, when in fact, 80% of its story, poem, imagery, and imagination, right? It's really interesting that you bring that up, though, because, and I'm sorry to interrupt again, but I'm going to interrupt you like crazy. That's just what I do. Um, Whenever you were talking about, you had that sort of negative impact, like you were looking at it from a worldview perspective instead of the person. And I thought that was really interesting because I know like Cherry and I, um, when we have our conversations, a lot of times we have we have encountered that person of Jesus Christ in our life, even though we might have been in this, 
maybe you're in a in a church where the doctrine is incorrect, or maybe you're in a place where your eschatology is not quite right, or whatever. But yeah. you've you've had this moment with the person. You've begun discipleship. You don't have all of the answers, but you have the relationship. And then yeah. as you become a disciple and you study more and more and more, then you start getting into like, oh, well, this is a different kind of a worldview. We're not polishing brass on a sinking ship. We're yeah. you know marching the kingdom. And then you start to lose touch. You feel like you're losing touch with the relationship that you once had. It's weird. Yes. It's such a strange yes. dichotomy. And so I've almost I've started backing off some. Like I'm definitely going to study, but I feel I feel the same way that you did. Like you start becoming very in tune with the fact like, "Hey, I don't want to lose this relationship here. That's what's act- that's where I'm safe. That's where I'm I'm sufficient, you know." Yeah, now this will all come into play later when we talk about the more theological distinctives of preterism and such, but nevertheless, uh, understanding how imagination integrates with faith. Uh yeah. Um, and this doesn't mean I reject rationality. I'm still, I still love reading philosophy and stuff. So I'm, I'm like, it's just, it's just recognizing those imbalances and getting more balanced throughout life, and and also learning to explore different different aspects of faith. You know, some people are just stuck in this one, their one element of faith, and and uh, they, and they think they're they're proud of the fact that they've never changed their minds on any theology. They think that that sort of makes them right. And I'm thinking, boy. You're the biggest fool of all because I've changed my theology in significant, like 180 degrees on some things. Um, I've had people I've say, God head. never changes. And it's like, well, yeah, I know. Yeah. I know God doesn't yeah. change, but yeah. you're you should be. This, yeah. You should be. Like, you're, you're, yeah. you're not God, you know? But anyway, yeah. sorry about that. Yeah. And, I, you know, so, so there's that element of it. But, uh, but also then, then I, you know, I eventually, basically through that, I found... I feel like I've I started my journey, which I feel like now I'm I'm at the height of it. But it it, it took many it took decades. But I began the journey of that integration of faith and imagination and my art. And but but what happened was then I finally understood. I finally had a sense of uh, rootedness in something eternal. In other words. Because I was part of the kingdom of God, a higher cause, you know, the the something higher than myself, then my art became an expression of that and a, an expression of truth still, but it's the truth now that I find it's something that's eternal and I have meaning and purpose in everything I do. And even though I'm long dead, in fact, I don't care when I'm dead and long gone, my, my reward will not be, are they going to worship, are they going to study me when I'm dead? My reward will be, I did this for God and his kingdom mm-hmm. and well done, thou good and faithful servant. And that's why, that's why I do it. And um, so be it whatever, whatever happens in the results doesn't matter, you know? So that's, that's how I found that meaning and purpose in facing death that I, that I never had. And, and, um, and then, uh, you know, in, in college, actually, I, I met the woman who would become my wife, you know, six years later, but um, my wife, Kim. And, um, so uh, yeah, so that's that's you know that's roughly my my Christian testimony, and of course since that time, as I've lived out that faith, the truth is is I've still lapsed into the desire for fame. You know, I still sometimes wish I get more credit for my work. You know, um, and and so you know, having found that meaning, having found that purpose, having been forgiven, doesn't mean I I'm not still a sinner or that I I'm, I'm actually probably. I'm probably the worst person I know, you know, um, and and so 
I'm a very selfish person. And if it weren't for the grace of God and my wonderful wife who embodies the grace of God more than anything I've ever seen, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't have much of, much of a chance on this, on this earth for sure. But uh, yeah, so, so it, yeah, the message, you know, Christ doesn't perfect you, doesn't give you perfection. He doesn't make everything all right because we've had a lot of suffering in our life as well. Minimal compared to most people, I would say. But still, we've had our suffering and Christ doesn't make everything work out perfect in the way you want and all that. Um, but you find the meaning and purpose through the suffering, through the, um, through the longing, through the, uh, uh, through the pursuit of him is, is really, you know, it's funny, I'm not a mystic, <laughs> but but I've certainly seen some some of the resonances of that in my later years of life, understanding this notion of how God can be so silent and um, yet still be there in the silence, which of course reminds you of the prophet Elijah, right? Yep. So there's a lot of those elements, have, again, having to do with imagination. So I had that turn, you know, what they call the postmodern turn where I realized, and actually I, I discovered, but I didn't become a postmodernist, but I had that turn when I realized the, the limits of reason and the limits of that, that whole pursuit of truth from an intellectual standpoint. Yes, it's legitimate, but it doesn't cover everything. And there's a lot that the imagination can actually cover and connect with in a way that reason cannot. And so my stories are, are that combination of both of those things and at least I seek to make them that way, um, where I, incarnation is the is what I call it. You know, I tell stories where I, I seek to incarnate the truth rather than preach it or something like that. You know, and and that's the word made flesh. You know, that's the perfect perfect um, link of the the uh, the logos and the imagos. You know, day. So. Um, I think that's interesting yeah, so, that you say seek, and then you say a lot of things about what searching for. I hear that from a lot of Catholics. When you were talking about earlier, where you didn't see things, you know, you're looking for God. Uh, in in the Catholic Church, we know we're taught you go through the priest. Everything goes through the priest, and then yeah. at a certain point, you get some kind of awakening, or you go seeking, uh, like you did. And I think that's yeah. a good message for everyone out there, whether you're Christian or Catholic or whatever religion is to actually do what you're talking about. And that is to seek and to go find God. And then yeah. you will start getting your understanding and your understanding will change as you grow and mature in the Lord. Yeah. That's definitely the, the thing that I've noticed. We've been doing testimonies for almost a year now and every one of them are exactly the same in this. You all start from a starting point, you grow, you learn, you continue to grow and then you you reach this place, whatever this place might be, you know. And but it never actually ends, I guess, until we put this earthly tent in the dirt. You know, that's the idea: is that we're going to continue to grow, and we need to change. So, well, anyway. it's like a series, a series on TV. You know, the the end. The, there's an end to the episode. There's a beginning, middle, and end. But the series still is going to go on, right? Yeah, you got to get and, to the next. And that's definitely season. how I see it. Yes. Well, speaking Absolutely. of that, so you 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 had this Christian awakening. And you started seeking God, and you got the awareness. When did you make the turn to preterism? Well, in college. So I'm I'm in college, and and actually everything everything starts there in a real way because that's when I really started pursuing truth of the Bible and studying it and theology and all that kind of stuff and philosophy. That's when I actually first started learning about philosophy and and um, uh, what was I going to say? Um, 
Yeah. So, okay. So there's several things that are occurring at the same time, you know, and, and one of those is the, the theological pursuits as well as the artistic pursuits, you know? So I, I start going, I, I was a visual artist as graphic design type of thing, illustration. Um, and I, but I always loved movies and, but understanding the worldview then allowed me to, I started watching movies and started seeing the worldviews that I didn't see before. And I started seeing how powerful it is. And mostly, you know, a lot of the movies were pretty secular and pretty much not positive towards Christian faith type of thing. But I saw how powerful they were to emotionally move people. And I would go and I would cry at movies because I would be crying because I would be seeing how powerful it is and how much I desired God's word, God's kingdom, God's truths to be communicated through stories like that. And that's what began my desire to get into movies. But it would take many years before I could... Um, actually become a screenwriter because the the solitude of of a writer's life was definitely not for me uh, you know uh, I was too lonely uh, until I got married <laughs> then I was able to handle the solitude you know because I had my wife and um but um so that began but also the theological pursuit which you know was pretty dramatic in, in many ways but so that artistic imagination understanding um seeing the scriptures uh not in terms, you know, when we read, a lot of times when modern day American Christians read the Bible, we, you know, we just tend to read it literally and particularly prophecy, you know, the sky rolls up like a scroll. Well, that's gotta be, that's gotta be the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the big bang reversal or whatever, you know, and, and <laughs> yeah, so. Yeah, we read it like a newspaper. Yeah, yeah, read it like a newspaper, you know, and, um, but then I, st- I just, I don't even remember who I came into contact with. I don't even remember who it was, but, but he, he gave me, um, He's talking about this preterism thing, you know, and I just thought it was heresy literally at first because it's like, what? We have nothing to look forward to. You're saying, did Christ already come? And of course, I'm a partial preterist, so I still believe there's that future element. But there's still, when, when you first hear it, Christ came on the clouds, you're, you're assuming that means he already came. And that means, you know, there's nothing else to look forward to. And, and there's no Antichrist and all this stuff, you know. And I had been raised Darn it, with, there's um, no tribulation? Dang! Yeah, yeah, there's no Antichrist? Darn it, I wanted to go <laughs> So I had been, um, I had learned, um, read um, Hal Lindsey. He was like one of the earlier. Oh, uh, the late wow. great because, planet Earth. Yeah. yeah, late great planet Earth, baby. You can buy it for a nickel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, by the way, go on YouTube now. Uh-huh. You can find the movie and you've got to watch it because it just shows you how all these futuristic Christian prophecies, how completely out of date they are. Of course, now they think they're not. But if you look at that, you see, look, he he used the same Bible passages you did. He made the same links to to from the newspaper to the Bible that you did, just different interpretations. But it's the same assurance that you have. Yep. And he was so completely wrong that he's literally a false prophet. And and so now, how how do you think about that? You know, when you're making the same kinds of projections, right? Well, they so, all are. Anyway, they all are. Let's just be real. Yeah, they I mean, are. They're all yeah. false false prophets. They're yeah. all getting it wrong. And so, I agree with you on that one. You know, I really do. Yeah, and and and, and this isn't just a. <clears throat> it's not just a theological. It's just not just my eschatology, uh, judging other eschatologies. At that time, I was even over the years. I was bothered by it. like I would look at that and realize even in that in that time period, you know, Christ was supposed to come by 1988 because of the whole Israel became a nation in 48 and all this stuff, and all these prophecies kept not happening, and it just bothered me. And I started thinking, 
maybe there's something to the fact that if they're always wrong, and of course, yeah, I heard even before him, there were the same kind of prognostications. If that viewpoint, that premillennial and whatever, is always wrong, maybe it's not the individual interpretations that are wrong. Maybe it's the system, you know? And that's what enabled me to at least be more open to preterism. But the thing that drew me in was actually, I, I Gary DeMar's books were very influential and, and, um, uh, and, and his appeal to the imagery of the Old Testament prophets is the basis or foundation of the New Testament prophetic images. So when you see Christ coming on clouds, well, obviously that's Jesus surfing in on a cumulus nimbus. It has to be, obviously, right? I think it's well, a stratus, no, but nice try. Yeah. And, and like, well, no, actually not. Uh, and, 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 and if you look back at the Old Testament, you know, when you, you see that this notion of Yahweh coming on the clouds to judge cities, nations, and tribes, and then it becomes clear, oh, this is a common imagery, as well as all the collapsing universe imagery, you know, the stars falling, all this. They're used in the Old Testament to refer to very specifically historic instances that we know already happened. And so clearly the most biblical approach is understanding in, the, in those terms. Now, when I first started Matthew 24, the first part of Matthew 24 was easier to understand that, oh yeah, that could see how that could be fulfilled in the first century. But when you got to that coming on the clouds, that was the hardest thing for me. It took a, it took a while before I was able to give up. Yeah. That, the sun will be darkened and yeah. Yeah. All yeah. That and, stuff. and coming on the clouds, you know, coming, and yeah. it's, you, you know, it's just, it took a while before I just started realizing, you know, no, actually nowadays, I think that's the easiest thing to prove because of the fact that it's so rooted in clear Old Testament imagery that you just have to give up this notion that, that that's something in, in our future that, you know, that it was applied to the, the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. But it took a while, you know, and it took a few years probably. And, um, you know, at the same time, uh, and part of that, part of the reason why I became open to it as well was because of my interest in apologetics, I was introduced to Greg Bonson and um, I started listening to his stuff and it was just powerful and it just blew away everything else I had heard. And I started learning about, you know, presuppositionalism and such and, and, but just, just the nature of his argumentation and yeah, his Bonson was a contemporary of Gary DeMar actually, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He so, influenced Gary. That's right. And so, yeah. So he also was a preterist. And so that's why I was, because I trusted him, I was willing to, read his stuff and listen to him because I realize a lot of times it takes us, we don't trust these other people that we think are bad people, but if someone that we respect starts to say the same thing, then we consider it. You know what I mean? That's right. So yeah, that, that was, that was sort of the opening. Um, but it was, my point is, is all that imagination, that imagery that I thought was literal, but no, it's, it's poetic, symbolic imagery and it's beautiful. And that's why, um, you know, but I had always been afraid of revelation. It, we, it even wasn't up until a couple of years ago that I just sort of stayed away from revelation because it seems so complex. And I just, you know, um, and, and I, you know, I would have a basic preterist understanding of it, but I still wasn't sure, you know, until I, um, I, I went through Ken Gentry's commentary on Revelation, and I had to do that for my novel series, and it's which not one, available which yet. One? No, I was going to say, well, how did you get it, that? Because it's not I'm, out yet. I'm a friend. I'm friends with good friends good with him. Good grief. In fact, Are you I've kidding designed, me right now? I've designed <laughs> a lot of his book covers. Really, I've got his revelation made easy, and inside that book, yeah. it talks about this. And by the way, that book was put out like twelve years ago, so he's kind of yeah. like the George R. R. Martin of the Christian yeah. world. 
yeah, yeah, but who is a Christian that has left uh, Revelation alone? I don't know very many people that have picked that up well, and that's said, true. hey, let's just jump into this. I know, but Gentry's been talking about this for a while. Oh, yeah. You know? Well, you know, I read Chilton's uh, a while ago, and that helped. That made some sense, but he's he was a little loosey-goosey, uh, you know, and, and I, I do love Ken's very analytical and very detailed and organized approach to answering everything. Yeah. I, I don't always agree with them, but I do appreciate that. So it was now I had had a preterist view of it, but I just didn't have enough knowledge of all the details. But when I, I went read through his commentary, then I got it. And then I'm like, okay, now, now I get it. And now I'm solid. And now I'm, I'm more confident, but I mean, the truth is I'm never, I'm never absolute in my confidence, especially when it comes to something like that. So um, I'm always open to, you know, listen to other people. You views. know, I just but, realized something, this is a callback, but do you remember how I told you, you know, I kind of joked about the neuronic persecution. Yeah. Now I know why you're a Gentry fan and Gentry yeah. before Jerusalem fell. He was an early, he's really like the authority when it comes to the early date is Ken Gentry. So yes. now I know where you got it from. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, that's absolutely. He he was a big, 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 huge influence on me. Well, so, you should um, send him a message, please. That we are, he is in Greenville. We are in Hendersonville. We are forty-five minutes from him. He should come yeah. up and be on our show. You should tell him. Okay, we I, want I, him on the show. I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of Ken Gentry. Oh, I'd love to. I, I'm sure he will. Um, shameless plug. So shameless plug. Every time, every time you bring somebody else on and they start talking, I'm taking notes of all of the books they've read, all of the people that the I know. influence and the gentry comes up all, all the, time. the time, consistently. Yeah, you know, interestingly, I, I so I got to say, he like I told you, what I like about him is that what I but in in some ways the most. The, the one that I enjoy reading the most, like he's the best for really in-depth study, but the one I enjoy reading the most is Gary DeMar. He's the best writer. Yeah. Because like he, you know, he Last Days Madness was, yeah. And, and he, but he, he writes in a way that's very flowing, conversational, but he's very scholarly. So it's not like he's, you know, just writing Christian life type stuff by any means. Yeah. But that Last Days Madness was for forever. I mean, it's still the one I recommend to anybody who, for the best introduction to uh, partial preterism. So, um, yeah. And, it's fantastic. And so, yeah. And, and, and he, he's just a great writer, you know. Ken is more of an academic writer, and Gary's more of a scholarly, uh, but— He's an artist. Um, artist, yeah. He has a sense of art to, to his writing, absolutely. So. Yeah, we, uh, we were very happy. He actually came to the studio and met with us here and shared his testimony, and we, cool. really, we really like Gary. He's a very nice guy. Yeah. It sounds yeah. to me like, and, and, and I'm, I'm asking him uh, more a question, that you've been drawn to preterism because it answers some— outstanding questions you weren't getting from some other sources. Yes. And um, also I have a, I've always had a, you know, a, a curiosity of history and I'm not a history buff per se, but I love things like philosophy, history. The I do love scholarly work and stuff and, and scholarly concepts. And, and I'm drawn to that. And one of the reasons why I was drawn into the Preterist writings is because they were talking about this time period that I had never heard anything about, you know, from, uh, from, you know, from the end of book of Acts, right. To AD 70. And it was, they were just describing all this historical stuff and they were showing, and here's how it fulfills the scripture. And so to me, it was the most biblical approach I'd ever read. Cause I mean, other, 
you know, other views are just speculative, you know, um, Gog is Russia or whatever, you know, and, and it's like, well, what, <laughs> you know, but he, the, you know, the way, the way preterists are, it's like, well, here's how it was, here's the, here's the passage, here's how it was used in the Old Testament, see how then it could be applied to the New Testament, oh, and here's what Josephus said actually happened, and so all that historical and biblical, it was the most biblical and most historically, uh, oriented writing. And so it was the scholarship angle that really sort of sucked me in at first. And even though I was disagreeing with it, it's like, but it's so fascinating. And I'm like, I'm learning a lot about the history of this time period. And all of this destruction of the temple is fascinating. I didn't know anything about it, you know? Yeah, I had, I just read, I can't remember who did it. Some, somebody uh, is actually, we've, we've said inside this room, and Andy will remember this too. We've talked about this many times. We'd say the prophecy was so good. It's almost like it happened. You know, oh, yeah. and then after the fact, they wrote it as if they wrote it before, and they were so yeah. spot on. Well, Lucian in history, there is a belief that Lucian actually wrote primarily most of the New Testament, and that he used Josephus as his background. And this huh. was written, yeah, and this was written in the mid seventies to the early eighty A.D. And that this was looking at. Have you heard this before, Brian? No. No. Oh man, I'll have to send it to you. It's really fascinating. It's probably complete, you know, her, you know, heresy, but whatever. <laughs> it's something. It's something out there that it's kind of going like what we said. Like it was so perfect. It's almost like the guy read Josephus, then he wrote yeah. the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah. It's pretty and, and wild. Anti predators are always like, watch out. The predators are always going to bring up that Josephus. You know. Yeah. And uh, well, yeah. Well, you can use Tacitus. But, you can use Josephus yeah, if yeah. you'd like. <laughs> Well, so. you know, interestingly, I had known about Josephus, of course, and I've read pieces of him. But whenever I tried to read him, he's just so dry and boring that it was always so hard to just actually read him over the years. Yeah. But it wasn't. This is one of the reasons why I love at what I love write being. I'm so grateful that I'm able to write books about things I want to write about and I'm interested in because it allows me to dig deeper. And when I'm writing a story. I can read boring histories that I could not read on my own because I'm looking for the story and I'm looking for specific. Right. Yeah, you're doing the research. Yes. Yeah. Same here. So research Same here. Allows me to focus in a way that I never. So going through all of Josephus was fascinating in helping me to 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 tell my story in Chronicles of the Apocalypse. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I don't want time to get away from us. There's a few things that I definitely want to know about you um, before we get to the end of this episode, and that being, um, could you tell us? That uh, um, when did you get into writing? Like, what was your first book? What made you decide to become an author? Yeah, well, I've always been a, a visual artist. Like I said, that's how that's what I was trained in. But when I started getting interested in movies, actually, I loved in in college. I loved doing street drama, evangelistic street drama, and of course, that's you have fascinating. to write. Your, yeah, mm. you have to write your own, and it's, it's fun. You know, it's fun to play the characters and stuff. Uh, but I realized I had to write my own skits because, you know, I, I had I had a, a, a burning desire to communicate something to people. And uh, so I had to write my own. And, and that's when I learned that, okay, it's the writer that really is the originator of the, ultimately, of the theme or content or meaning, you know, that kind of thing. And so when I got interested in movies and realized, what can I do for movies? Well, the one thing you could do that you didn't have to be a starving artist or, you know, you have to didn't have to go to Hollywood, didn't have to uh, get a crew of people to help you direct it, right? Is writing. You could write a script and sell it from anywhere, right? And so that allowed me to pursue my normal life, but then pursue the writing on the side. 
And it took me many years, my you know, like ten years before my first movie was was made. Writing's but, a um, lot of discipline too. I yeah, it really, it really is. is. Can you it tell all, us what that really movie is. was? What what was the first movie? Uh, to end all wars in two thousand and uh, two thousand one. And that's the that's the Robert Carlyle and Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah, that's a, so, that's a good movie. Wow. Yeah, so I had a pursuit. I had a career in, in um, screenwriting first, and that was, and that's always been my passion. And I, even to this day, I just I love movies more than anything. I really do, and I, I I'd love to be able to 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 make movies, but it's 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 almost impossible, and it's really hard to make a living at it anyway. But, um, but I was able to, fortunately, all over those years. <laughs> boy, and, howdy. And, <laughs> Well, the nice thing about that movie, I said, and- "Boy, howdy!" We've we uh, I've done some you know small Christian films, and I actually have profited on both of my films, but I didn't. They were all limited release, you know, nothing big. Yeah. Didn't yeah, have no key yeah. for Sutherland in it. Well, yeah. the nice thing about that movie, and then I've read uh, about two of his other ones. I've read about them. They're the movies that make you kind of think. Yeah. yeah, you come away with a message, and you have to think about how you're going to interpret that. Yeah, yeah. So it's better well, than Charlie in the, the Chocolate Factory. I'm trying to recall the words, but Actually, I really Charlie Chocolate Factory is very meaningful. I know. I'm just yeah. kidding. It was a joke. I'm, I was just trying okay. to find a way to slam Ralph, and it just blew up <laughs> my own face. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. Sorry to interrupt you, though. So you got oh, into no, screenwriting. So, so, you've written these this so film, I'm, and yeah, and you know, over the years, it, it was tough, um, and I had some down years, and and that's normal for everybody, but. In one, particularly, I had a couple of bad years where I made almost nothing, you know, and I just realized I've got to, I've got to, uh, you know, expand my horizons here. I got to, got to reinvent myself a little bit. And what other, can, what other thing can I do? I started considering maybe I could try to write a low budget movie that I could direct, you know, but also I realized, well, maybe I should start writing novels. I used to think I won't, I don't want to, I'm not, it's not like I really, I've never wanted to write novels. Okay. It's, it's a way for me to tell a story that I can do, but I, I, some, some novel writers, like it's the thing they wanted to do more than anything. And for me, it wasn't, it was more means to an end, but I still, I mean, I read a lot of books and a lot of novels when I was a kid, so I loved them, but it just wasn't the, the first thing on my list. Right. And so, but what happened was, um, you know, around 2010, 11, uh, uh, was that it? Yeah. I started to, um, so I, I came up with this great idea. I wanted to get a movie that Hollywood would love and, you know, also religious Bible believers or whatever could love too. And I, I came up with a, a great story that hadn't really been done this way. And I realized that there was an there was an odd angle to it that would be so cool for, for like I said, the Hollywood movie as well as the, the Bible audience. And that was a story about Noah. And I had discovered in my research for it, I discovered um, uh, Michael Heiser. And, and this was when he was first writing The Unseen Realm. It was not called The Unseen Realm, but it, went, it was free online because he's just a nobody scholar, you know. I, I want, it's he, the Naked Bible podcast, and it's fantastic. Yeah. And everybody needs to pray yeah. for him because he is battling cancer. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So anyway, it was his work that helped me open up this doorway to this 
phenomenal imagination, but story thread line in the Bible that I had not understood before. Of course, it's connected to the Nephilim, the giants. And it began with that Genesis 6, 1 through 4 uh, bizarre passage that was the most bizarre passage in the Bible that I just looked over and thought, said, I don't understand that. Maybe one day God will explain it, but I, you know, I, I still believe the Bible. I just don't have to understand everything. Well, when he started explaining that, I started seeing the the storyline throughout the whole Bible. And I thought, man, this is phenomenal. This would make a great movie. No one's ever done this before, right? So I write this script up and I've got the Nephilim and I've got Watchers and all this kind of stuff. And 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 then I heard, uh-oh, uh, Darren Aronofsky was making a Noah movie. And I just like, uh, I just sang, because, you know, I was a nobody and, and you could get a script sold as a nobody, but it's really almost impossible. So I just realized at that point, okay, I'm not going to get this made. He's going to get it made. And I thought, well, how can I get my story out before his so mine doesn't seem derivative? Um, and I thought, well, I guess now's the time to write the novel. Hmm. So that's what inspired me to go ahead and write the novel based on the script. And then that was Noah Primeval. And then that became the beginning of my novel career where I've been writing like two, two books or two novels a year uh, since then. And when I did that book, Kindle was just on the crest of beginning to be really popular, and and it's it started selling a lot. And I thought, oh, I can make money this way because I'm not making money with movies right now. So I just invested into it. I was still pursuing movies, but I started investing into writing the novels, and then that became the, my you know my novel writing career. And then eventually that that became a very good living that I'm doing now full time. And I still do movies on the side. In fact, I just this last week i just released a movie called my son hunter which is about Ooh, uh, i've hunter seen Biden's that laptop. on twitter that looks so good yeah it's about hunter Biden's laptop and it's a dark political satire very hollywoodish in that sense and it's a bit raunchy but it's it's um i mean so is the laptop <laughs> dude <laughs> yeah exactly but there's no nudity but there's everything else okay so uh but uh, like every good Christian writer should. Oh my gosh, exactly. if you could see some of the things Rick's been doing during this podcast. <laughs> Glad we turned Check his camera websites, off. Honey. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, so I'm still doing it, but it's really, it's more my hobby. Writing novels used to be the hobby, but now the movies are the hobby on the side. I don't need to make them, which also allows me to pick and choose. I don't have to do something if I don't want to do it anymore, which, which is great because it's just... The time and energy you have to put in, and the writer is a low man on the totem pole, and so it's also the humiliation of of that sort of position where you get kicked around. No, you get you get pushed around by the people above you. Make this change, make that change, and sometimes they're okay changes, but a lot of times they're not good changes. But you got to make them anyway. Was that the movie with Gina Carano too? Was that yeah. Gina Carano? Yeah, she's in it. Was this through the Daily yeah. Wire? Yes, the Daily Wire. Ben no, Shapiro. Ben Shapiro? Mm-hmm. No. No, oh, it's no. Not. this is what it's being released. You, you got to go to mysonhunter.com to get the movie. It's only online and it is released technically through breitbart.com, but you can, you, you can get the movie online by going to mysonhunter.com. And, um, but yeah, I, I'm familiar with what Daily Wire is doing and, and I, I, that's what I'd love to be a part of now is that kind that world. We call it the parallel economy where, so the whole other side of the equation that I didn't explain was, you know, right around uh, 2019, yeah, 2019, Hollywood went full woke. And I, I consider Hollywood to be dead now. Hollywood went full woke where they were, you know, of course, they've always been woke and leftist. And, and I've always had to like, be careful. <laughs> what, would you call Bright, what would you call Breitbart? 
unwoke and rightist. Yeah, just completely yeah. right down, right down the middle yeah. and plain spoken. Certainly, yeah. Yeah. no, no agenda there. We're not, we're not busting your chops. When you go so just, far left, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that. Anyway, well, the truth is, is, um, and you know, I mean, I when Breitbart started, I mean, you know, I met Andrew Breitbart, and it was it was a lot better than I think that it is now, but. Nevertheless, um, so Hollywood went full woke, and they started like saying, like in the new in the in the the um, the magazines and in in online and such, executives were just saying, you know, yeah, we're not gonna we're not gonna hire white middle aged men, you know, and it's just like. Wow, and, and, and you know, ever too- since then, there's not been one in any of the movies I've seen. <laughs> They've cleared them right out. Yeah, cleared well, him right actually, out. Meet, meet, meet Andy Bishop, our resident atheist <laughs> and liberal. Feel free to speak <laughs> up. Our, as much our as resident you white middle-aged. <laughs> actually, if you watch a dominant mo- number of the movies now, are, are women leads, and there's a lot more people of color in the movies. Which so I, I have no what? problem. With. I know and that's exactly what I say. So what? But the but the point is is. Um, as there's a problem with all affirmative action, right? I mean, you know, when when you're you're literally, well, it's racism, clearly it's know? affirmative action because you can't write about women or people of color. So it yeah. must be that they're just like throwing these people into roles they don't belong in. Yeah, exactly, exactly. In fact, it. In fact, I have some. I know some black guys back there who they're doing really well now. You know, because that's what they're looking for. They're they want we want people of color and uh, trans and gay and all that kind of stuff. And so the reality was, in that world, there's, you know, I had always had to fly under the radar anyway, because as as a white male Christian conservative, I was literally Satan to Hollywood. Yeah. And so, I, you know, you had to be very careful if as soon as I've had people, when they find out we're Christians and conservatives, that quit working with us and stuff. So I've experienced that stuff, but then I knew, okay, now it's, it's really over because I'm just a little guy working more in the independent side anyway. So I was, it's like, something, yeah, there's no, something there's I, no I, more I don't mean to interrupt you, but I do want to make mention of this. Let's talk about Hollywood for just a second and what has happened. If you remember, there was a time in Hollywood where Cecil, you know, Cecil DeMille and the 10 commandments and Christian stories and Samson and Delilah. And like, that was a big thing in Hollywood. And yeah. especially that was, on, uh, I'm sorry to bring the Jews in, but let's just be real. Um, you know, the the ones that were in control of Hollywood, they were very much into the moral side of the story. And then over time from the 60s, 70s, 80s, things sort of got away from it. And so- Follow the money. Well, yeah. But now, now it seems like, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that, yes, I think morally speaking that Hollywood was, they were really concerned about it. On screen, not so much behind screen, right? They were more on screen that way. And then as yeah. time goes on, then it's it doesn't matter what's on, you know, uh, on screen so much, and they want to hide what's behind screen, you know, mm-hmm. still like I continue to do that. Anyway, I don't mean to interrupt you, and I have to make sure that we 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 got to roll this in because we are we're just a couple minutes over, and I want to sure. be sure that we wrap this up in the correct way. So. Uh, well, that's that's what launched me to to move to Texas and free myself from the the bondage of oppression. Yes, I was intersectionally oppressed in Hollywood. I know it's outrageous to think, but the truth is, is you know that it was just it, everything just kind of came together. And I thought, you know what, I, I want to focus more on my novels anyway because it's more 
it's it's what I it's the story I want to tell. And even the people I've worked with who I liked, you you end up telling their stories for them, and that's okay. I love I'm a team member, and and I'm, I make I make it work as I did with my son Hunter and such. But but um, there's something about when you get your own story out there the way you want it. So that that was very fulfilling. For instance, I had written a script about Jezebel for this team of guys, and and um, and it and it was one of the best scripts I wrote, and it was really timely and perfect and all that. And it starred a woman, so that's okay. Um, yeah, but, but she was a whore. <laughs> yeah, Jezebel. Yeah, <laughs> she was a mean no, old whore. No, she wasn't. She I know, was I'm just a kidding. queen, and it was the just patriarchal <laughs> fascists of the Jews who were bad. <laughs> but um, I'm just messing. But uh, uh, so. Um, but I got the rights to do the novel because there was a whole other element of it that I couldn't put in there in the movie. And so I wrote the novel of it, and that was my version. And I don't care if they ever make the movie because my version got out there, and I feel, I feel satisfied with that, you know, because as a storyteller, that's the satisfaction you get is, is your story out there and people are reading it and such. And, sure. And, um, you know, so – that's where I am now. Well, Brian, will you tell our audience how that they can find your stuff? So I, we already sort of mentioned it, but um, you you can get you mentioned Kindle. So I'm assuming that your books you can find them on Amazon. You can yes, find them. Everything on- is exclusively on Amazon. Book, all my book, most all my books are in paperback, um, ebook, or audiobook. And um, yeah, there's several series. Just, I'm the only Gadawa problem. I think I'm probably the only Gadawa on Amazon. So just type in my name and you'll find all the uh, series. And right. Stuff and Brian Gadawa, G-O-D-A-W-A, Gadawa. Yes. Yes. And, and your so, website's Gadawa.com? Yes. Yeah. So go to Gadawa.com and uh, you can see, uh, I went on your site today and you were able to see all of the books. You are able to see all of And there are the links films, for everything links there. Links for everything there. Yep, you can go. You can go on to Wikipedia and even look up Brian Gadawa, and he's got all of the ISBNs for all of his books that you can click and get to. So, Brian, it means a lot that you actually were on the show. I really appreciate you uh, sharing your testimony and, um, you know, making sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, hey, thanks for being around. Yeah, it, yeah, it was really nice of you to be here. And and uh, Bob, tell Bob Crookshank hi the next time you talk to him. Will do. Yeah, absolutely. Well. Uh, Billy, uh, Ralph, any of you guys have any questions you'd like to bring to uh, Brian before we end? I think I'm good. Yeah? I asked mine. You asked yours, so it's good. All right. All clear. All right. Well, Jerry, Sarita, Andy, Ralph, Billy, and Brian, all of you guys, thanks for being on the show, and we will talk to you guys next time on the Burrows of Berea. Hey guys, this is Rick from the Burrows of Berea. Do you know how much blood, sweat, and tears it takes to make a podcast? None. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't cost a lot. And so if you guys don't mind, if anybody would like to give to help us with these episodes, it would be great. We'll put out even more content. And if you go to our Patreon page, just search for the Burrows of Berea, you'll get extra notes, extra episodes, and it's pretty much free. A dollar gets you a lot. Thanks, guys. I think that that was Andy's favorite episode.